please open up your Bibles to John chapter 16, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 15. So please follow along in your Bibles as I read, beginning in John chapter 16, verse 1, where Jesus said to his disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told you them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but, I, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you once again to be gathered with my brothers and sisters in your word. And we ask, Lord, that your word would not just uh, fill us with information, but would penetrate our hearts and change our lives and cause us to worship you and to follow you deeper and more profoundly this, this day and this week. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And it's in your name we gather and we pray, amen. Chapter 16 is continuing Jesus' farewell speech to his disciples, which spans basically from chapter 13 of John through chapter 17. And as we've already mentioned, it's past midnight. It's probably early in the morning. And Jesus is just hours away from being betrayed, tried, and crucified And Jesus is getting ready to die. As he's getting ready to die, he is preparing his disciples for his departure. And in addition to reminding them of his love for them and the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he keeps reminding them of, uh, Jesus prepares them for the uh, persecution that is going to be coming shortly after his death upon them. Jesus had told them in chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, he said concerning the persecution from the world that they would face. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Um, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then quickly after reminding them of, of the promise of the Holy Spirit, At the end of chapter 15, he says in chapter 16, verse 1, our text today, he says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Up until this point, Jesus had protected his disciples from um, 
much persecution. He had taken the brunt of it himself, and he was about to take the full weight of it shortly. But as you know, if he had not told them uh, what was coming, they would fall away. And that was Jesus' main concern, that if this sudden persecution would come upon them after Jesus departed, that their faith would falter. And Jesus, knowing that, he speaks to them, caring for them, loving them, telling them what is headed their way. And the purpose for that is that they would not be like these superficial believers who would not endure, but would be those true believers who endure the persecution of the world and still bear fruit. Jesus, it was interesting because Jesus likened the people who did not endure under persecution uh, to a seed that started out like on, on rocky ground and it didn't have its root. In Matthew 13, verses 20 through 21, he says about those who don't endure persecution. He says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And so there's an emotional response to, to Jesus or to God, and yet it has no root in himself. See, it's superficial. How do we know that? That it only endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecu- persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You know, many come to seek after Christ. They hear a message about Jesus, and there's this emotional response. And they desire the blessings of God, the forgiveness of God, and all, these, all that is in Christ Jesus, which is, which is beautiful on that side of things. But they do not want and they do not accept a, the cross of Christ. And sadly, that's because a crossless gospel has been preached a gospel without suffering, a gospel without self-denial, a gospel that is self-centered and all about that person and their felt needs instead of the glory of God, which is personified, obviously, in, in Jesus Christ, who gave up and denied himself and even went to the cross to fulfill the Father's will. And so we as disciples are to follow him in that way. And a Christianity without suffering, without self-denial, where we are taught to um, identify and relate to the world in the name of a false love and, and to have unity with the world, it's, it's to our shame often because we think that somehow by loving and embracing this, this world and its values and, and its practices that by embracing those things, we actually find out, if I can reverse that, if I could, by embracing those things, we actually find out that those things are an affront to Christ, the very things that he died to redeem us from, and yet the church um, just takes it wholeheartedly that we're just to be one with the world. And, and the apostle James says to this, he says, you adulterous people, it's like cheating on God. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You're at war with God if you want to be friends with the world. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So church, if you are serious about Jesus Christ, you need to expect that the world is, is not going to like it. There's going to be resistance. And, and um, I think we need to be very careful about a false sense of unity because, it, not, that, not that we want to be rude, uh, not that we want to um, 
to, you know, take a cause and, and shove it down people's throats and all that kind of stuff. But the idea is that we love God more than we desire the, the praise of men. And quite often when we, um, we try to capitulate to everything the world offers and try to get along with everything they say, it's at the expense of what God calls us to do, which is embrace the suffering, the rejection of the world. And I think that's rooted in a false believer in that when that actually comes, when the moment comes when you realize that you need to choose between God and the world, it, that there is, a, it is a breaking away of God and a following after the world. But the true believer will endure. And so Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to be ready for this. I want you to be ready for the world not to like you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Not because you're rude, not because you're mean, not because of all these things, but because you have me in you. You're following me and they rejected me. They're going to reject you. It's coming. And Jesus desired that they would persevere through this uh, suffering. And Jesus says, I don't want you to fall away. And the idea of falling away there in the Greek is like, it's like an animal going for a trap that was baited. I don't want you to fall into the trap of thinking that, that uh, you know, that it's going to be some, suddenly sprung upon you and you're just going to be caught. I want you to expect it and to have it in your mindset that there is suffering along with the glory. And so Jesus describes in very general terms for the disciples what they could expect, what the actual persecution was going to look like. In verse 2, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And so two things there, they're going to put you out of the synagogues and you will also be put to death. And so there's the, just to give some uh, cultural background here, there's, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, um, there's a disfellowship that happens. There's an excommunication that would happen in the disciples. And, and for a, a Jew in that day to be excommunicated from, excommunicated from the synagogue wasn't simply just to, hey, you can't come to church here anymore. It was that your whole life was wrapped up in the worship of God um, with your family, with the people, with the nation. It was a religious nation. And so when you were excommunicated from the religious center of the society, when you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were excommunicated from your family. You were excommunicated from your town and from society. You were shunned. You became an outcast. And so because of Jesus... The disciples would, would, should expect that there would be rejection from, uh, from this, the people would be kicking them out of the synagogue and that their families would reject them, the society would re- reject them. But it wasn't that that was the end of their suffering. Jesus said that those people are going to kill you. There would be those who are going to actually kill you. And 11, uh, well, yeah, 11 out of the 12 apostles died. Jesus said that they would be killed and executed because they were his. And so this is what they would face. And the hour, the time for that was just around the corner. And Jesus wanted to let them know it was, it was right there. It was coming. Their time for their excommunication and their time for their execution. 
And Jesus not only told them what would happen to them, he told them who would actually be doing it to them so that they could expect that as well. Jesus said it would come upon them by people who were thinking they were doing that in service or worship to God. It would come at the hands of religious people. Specifically for the disciples, it would come by the hands of the Jews who had crucified Christ. And they would continue to follow them into the Gentile nations where they would be not only persecuted by Jews, but by those pagan leaders and those pagan cultures who would persecute them and execute them. And we, we know uh, this radical persecution was going on very shortly after uh, Christ's death. Obviously, Christ's death was the start of it, but um, we know that it was going on right after that because the apostle who, who, who penned a large portion of the New Testament was one of those Jews who was doing the persecution early on. The apostle Paul, our, our beloved brother, whom we're all blessed by and just deeply changed as we read his writings. He was a vicious persecutor of the church, of Christians. And we know this because Paul tells us. It's recorded actually by Luke in Acts 22, uh, 1 through 3. Paul says of himself, get this, Paul is, he's come to the Lord and now he's going around and he's getting persecuted the same way that he persecuted others. And so he's in Jerusalem and there's riots going on, people wanting to kill him. Um, and, and the Romans had to step in between the, the masses and Paul, and Paul is standing there in Jerusalem, and he starts to preach to them and try, trying to relate to this crowd and say, listen, I was one of you, I understand, and this is what Paul says here in Acts 22, 1 through 3. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educate, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which was one of the obviously most esteemed rabbis there, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He says, I, was, I persecuted this way to death, the way being Christians. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear, wit- uh, bear me witness... From, then I re- from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who, are wi- who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And so Paul is just letting this crowd know, listen, I was one of you and not only was I one of you, I was more radical than any of you. I was on the front lines gathering up Christians and bringing them to death and to uh, quote-unquote justice. A few chapters later, Paul testifies before Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa in Acts 29, 9 through 11. And Paul gives his testimony before him when he says, I myself was convicted that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That was his conviction. He thought he was serving God in this matter. Verse 10, and I did so in Jerusalem, and I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after I received authority from the chief chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, like he did with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Paul is describing uh, himself to be the very person uh, that would be 
the type of person who would attack the disciples, who would attack Christianity. Paul says, I was one of them. So this was Paul who was convinced he was doing all this as a service or worship to God. He was convinced of it when he actually he was persecuting the Lord Jesus by persecuting his body. And Jesus met Paul as Paul was leaving Jerusalem, going on the road to Damascus to go persecute more Christians. And Jesus appeared to Paul in blazing glory. And Paul was broken and he was a changed man from that morning, uh, that moment forward when Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? What are you doing? Don't you know you're persecuting me? And he was just, he was changed. And he became our beloved Paul, who then was just as radical the other way. And God gave him grace. Obviously, we've been touched by him. But the point is, the disciples and Christians would face persecution and death at the hands of men like Paul. And we see this persecution starting to manifest itself more intensely in Acts chapter 6, as I mentioned, the stoning of Stephen, which, which Saul, Paul, he resided over at the time. And from there, the persecution spread and the church had to flee. A lot of the leadership had to flee out of Jerusalem as they went to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And so when they left, the gospel went with them. And so did the persecution. And the apostles and those who ministered with them, those who wrote the the, the Gospels and, and others, they eventually died, most of them, eventually died just as Jesus said they would. There's a very fascinating book called, John, uh, it's Fox's Book of Martyrs by John Fox, F-O-X-E. And he records, I'm going to do an abbreviated version, the death of those who wrote the New Testament and those surround, those the apostles and those, some of those people surrounding them. Matthew one of the apostles suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horses through the street until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece as a result of tremendous preaching to the lost. The apostle John, who's writing this, he, he's the only one who survived. It, it says that he was boiled alive in, in, uh, in, a, in a basin of boiling oil, and somehow he survived, and then he was uh, sent to Patmos, where he received the revelation, and we have that, his writings there. And uh, there's a lot more there, but he's the only one who survived. James the Just, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown under a, over 100 feet down from the southwest pinnacle of the temple. And when he landed, he didn't die, and so they beat him with clubs until he died. That's the same pinnacle where Jesus was tempted um, by Satan. James the Greater, a son of De Zebedee, who was, who was John's brother, uh, was ultimately beheaded in Jerusalem. And the story goes that the Roman officer who guarded James watched amazed as James defended uh, his faith at his trial. And later the officer walked beside James to the place of execution. Overcome by conviction, he declared his new faith to the judge and knelt beside James to accept beheading as a Christian. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was a missionary to Asia. Bartholomew was martyred for his preaching in Armenia and was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in, in Patras, uh, Greece. And after being whipped sev severely by seven soldiers, they tied his body to a cross with cords prolong which prolonged his agony. And his followers, 
his followers reported that when he was led towards the cross, Andrew saluted it with these words. He said, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it. And he continued to preach to his tormentors for two days until he died. The apostle Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionaries' journeys to establish a church in that subcontinent. And there's churches there till this day. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot, was stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas, uh, one of, who, who went with Paul, who was the uncle of, of Mark, um, when he was one of the 70 disciples, he preached throughout Italy and Cyprus, and Barnabas was stoned to death at Salonica. Uh, the apostle Paul was tortured and and beheaded in Rome eventually. And lastly, Peter was crucified upside down because he thought he was unworthy to die in the same manner as the Lord Jesus. You see, each of these people would die for their faith. They would not only be excommunicated, they would die for Jesus Christ. And throughout history, believers have experienced the same. True Christians have been persecuted by pagan religions as the gospel spread to foreign lands by both pagan Rome and Rome uh, and Catholic Rome, which really is just the evolution of the Roman Empire there. It's more of a political religious system who persecuted and killed believers. And today, radical Islam is killing uh, Christians, persecuting believers and not to mention totalitarian dictatorships, North Korea, China, all these other places uh, that we have uh, Christians just persecuted and killed with impunity. And so it goes on and on and on. Jesus said to his disciples in verse 3, and they do these things because they, do n- they have not known the Father nor me. That's the root of it. They don't know God because if they had known Christ, they would never touch his. The hatred and the persecution would come to the disciples at the hands of religious people who do not know God. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what, it's, it's clear here. You can be religious and not know God. The world is filled with religious people, well-intent, good and bad, so to speak, that do not know God. And the truth is that all religion can be divided into two religions. The religion of, well, basically the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. One of those two you fall into. The religion of human achievement, that it's by, somehow by my works, religious or otherwise, or I'm a good enough person, somehow we ascend, we ascend to God, we ascend to whatever that religion says, that somehow it's a self-achieved thing, that we can do it that we have a a part in that. And then there's the one true religion of divine accomplishment that says we are unable, thoroughly unable by our works to ever do anything to ascend to God, but God descended to us and he sent his son. He died on the cross for our punishment, for our sin, for our rebellion. He gave us his righteousness by his grace and through faith in him, we are then lifted and we ascend in Christ. You see, Jesus paid it all. 
all to him I own. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. It is all Jesus. And now the things that I do as a believer in Christ are out of worship to him. They're a response to, not to earn something. When one realizes that they could never ascend to God on their own merit or something, they have to be driven to divine accomplishment. And we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in just a moment and how he brings us to that place, realizing that our works are as filthy rags before God. But divine accomplishment, not human achievement. One or the other, your end this morning. But the reaction of religious people to divine accomplishment is that it offends them deeply because somehow their works, their religious system, what they've done, their morals, their character aren't good enough. And that's exactly what God says through his scriptures about us. It isn't good enough, but there is one who is, his son. And it is only through him that we have salvation. And the world hates that. Verse four, but I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, the hour of persecution by the Christ-rejecting world, religious and non, you may remember that I told them to you. The hour did come, and as I mentioned, all but John uh, died uh, under persecution, and, and so that persecution continues on to this day with many brothers and sisters right now. And so as Jesus is, in ju- is just hours away from the cross uh, where he would die, Jesus wants to let them know that the persecution, it was coming so that they would remember when that time came. And Jesus withheld this information with them up until that point. It wasn't necessary for them to know. And so Jesus tells them in the middle of verse four, I did not say to these things to you Uh, From the beginning, because I was with you, you see, Jesus protected them. There was no need for them to be concerned about this at that time. But this was the time they needed to be concerned. Verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Jesus is saying, I am leaving, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, and none of them is asking where they're going because, verse 6, but because I've said to these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. As we mentioned last Easter, when we, uh, yes, well, last week, when we skipped ahead and did the next section of Scripture, speaking out the disciples' sorrow, their, their hearts were full of sorrow because they realized that he was leaving and they were going to face persecution. They were going to be excommunicated and they were going to be executed. Their heart was full of sorrow. And because of the, they didn't even ask where you were going, they were so self-focused at the moment. But Jesus lets them know. that even though he was leaving and all this would come upon them, that it was necessary for him to leave. It was necessary. There was a plan, and it was actually to their advantage. That's hard to hear, but it was to their advantage that this would happen. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus drives them back to the hope. 
He tells him, you're going to get persecuted, but he goes back to the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's doing back and forth. He's talking about promises, and he goes to persecution. He goes back to the promises. He goes to persecution, back to promises, and then he'll pray for them in John 17. But the advantage to the disciples of Jesus leaving is that in his place, he would send the Holy Spirit. You see, Christ was their helper. That's what he was doing. He was helping them understand God. He was bringing them eternal life. He was illuminating them to the things of God. He was revealing the mysteries of God to them. He was protecting them, all these types of things. He was empowering them. And just as Jesus was there helping them in the person, in one person, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go to the Father because when I go, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who will not just be with you, he will be in you each of you. The Holy Spirit will be in each of you. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God would be in them. He wouldn't be limited by a person. He would be in them. You would think that it would be better for Jesus to be there with them, but it was not so. The Lord knew better. He knew the plan. And so Jesus leaving would not only result to their advantage in that his, he would have the atoning sacrifice for their sins, which was obviously very much to their advantage, when he ascended, he would send them the Holy Spirit who would dwell in them. And that help came in two ways that Jesus describes here in the rest of the chapter. An external ministry of the Holy Spirit that they would experience and an internal. It's all in one, but I'm dividing it up this way just for clarity. Um, But first, Jesus describes the way the Holy Spirit would would be to their advantage and help them externally in the fallen world around them. And he says in verse 8, well, eight verses 8 through 11, he says, When he comes, he, that is the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judging. So Jesus describes three external effects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon the world around them when the Holy Spirit comes. This is what would happen. The three are that he would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. What does that mean? Well, first of all, really quickly, that word convict, the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction is important. When we think of the word convict, we can think of the word convict, and that's someone who has been in a court of law and who has been convicted of a crime because evidence has been presented to them in a way that it was undeniable and they have been convicted without a shadow of a doubt, right? They're convicted. And the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world, that is unbelievers, of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And so, in a sense... The Holy Spirit says first that he convicts the world of sin, that we have sinned against God by ultimately denying Jesus Christ, by not believing in the Son. The Holy Spirit reveals to sinful men that we're living in rebellion towards God, and that's what happens. You see, we don't realize that we're living in the darkness until the light gets turned on until the light shines. And when, you, when, the, when the light shines, you're exposed for what, what's truly going on. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world that we are sinners. We're in rebellion towards God. 
We, we reject the light of Jesus Christ in unbelief. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now as you sit there over your sin. You feel the weight of the guilt and the fear of the judgment of God upon your life. That is actually a good thing. It doesn't feel good, but it's a very good thing. And the reason why that is a good thing, because that leads to the second thing that Jesus says the Holy Spirit desires to convict us of, which is to convict us concerning the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is that His righteousness, His right standing before God is what we need, and we don't have it. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, the perfect Son of God. No one can approach God. He is the way. And you see, the Holy Spirit convicts us not only of our sin, that we have sinned against God in unbelief, but He, he, he sends us in that conviction to the Savior, to the one who can make it right, the one who is pure, the one who is right, the one who is good, the one who is holy, the one who is set apart, the one who is totally other than we are. He has what we need. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that and drives us to the Savior who will cleanse those who believe in Him, who will impute, is the Christianese term, who will give his righteousness to the unrighteous. He'll make the guilty innocent because he is innocent. He will give them his spirit. He will give them his peace. He will give them his love. He will bring them into what they cannot bring themselves into. Right standing before God, righteousness, the righteousness found in Jesus Christ. The guilty cannot expunge themselves. We can't sit there in a court of law before God and say, hey, you know what? Well, I just don't believe that. I'm I'm innocent. No, we're, we're guilty. And God's remedy is that he sent his son as the judge of the universe to die on behalf of people who don't deserve it, that they would believe that his son would receive the penalty and that we would go free, not free to sin, but free to be his sons and daughters adopted into his family. What love is that? And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of the righteousness of Christ, proven by the fact that he ascended to the Father. And thirdly, the judgment, that this world stands guilty before God and the ruler of this age stands guilty before God. He has been judged. Satan has been judged. He was cast down with a third of his angels to this world. And then at the cross, he was made a spectacle because that moment he thought he defeated the Son of God in that he riled up all the worldly forces to execute the light. But in that moment where he thought he had victory in executing the Son of God on the cross, it came out to be his greatest defeat because that was the means that God used to redeem all those who were under his control and under his power. And although Satan is judged and he is made a spectacle, has been made a spectacle, he roams for a season and he desires to um, quell the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting and he blinds those in this age. He might be blinding you right now to the fact that Jesus is the light. And that 
will come to an end. That will come to an end at the end of the age when Christ will take him and cast him into, will command that he get, get taken and cast him into the lake of fire where the beast is, the Antichrist is, and all those who reject Christ will spend an eternity in a just punishment. It's a serious stuff. There is a judgment, and the Holy Spirit has come to convict us that that is coming. And those who are Christ's have been declared not guilty because of Jesus Christ. Praise God. Hallelujah. You see, it's to the disciples' advantage that the Holy Spirit would come because he'd be performing this external ministry, so to speak, to the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so there's that external ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, as we, as we get ready to close here, in verses 12 through 15, Jesus points out the internal ministry, the benefits, the advantageous aspect of the Holy Spirit coming to the disciples, how it would minister to them. And in addition to the things we've already gone over in John, like in uh, John 7, 37 through 39, that the Holy Spirit would give them eternal life, the promise of the Spirit giving them eternal life, that the Holy Spirit in John 14, 6, through 17, it promised that he would indwell them permanently and empower them to be witnesses of Jesus, Acts 1, 8, and John 15, 26 through 27, and so forth. There's just tons of promises. In addition to what Jesus already said, he gives us three more, basically, in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear to hear them now. They didn't have the capacity because of the overwhelming sorrow in face of the persecution um, they didn't have the capacity to hear truth at the moment. But Jesus said, you will. Verse 13, when will that happen? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will, not take what is, uh, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So really quick, those three points again as we close. The ministry of the Spirit, that internal ministry that Jesus points out here in the remaining of John 16. Verse 13 says, basically, first, that the Spirit would guide them in all truth. You see, Jesus was their teacher at the moment. He was the one leading them in truth. He was revealing the ministry, ministries of God. Well, when Jesus left, he would send the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, all called the same. God would indwell them and continue that ministry to the apostles. He would continue to teach them. And same with us. We are taught by the Spirit of God. Beautiful. By, he, as he, he illuminates us as we read the Scriptures that were revealed by the apostles, that were given to the apostles, and now we read that, and we have understanding. We have spiritual ears, spiritual discernment. Paul talks about that later. We can understand the things of God. That's because the Spirit would guide them into all truth. We know what is true and what is a lie as believers as we grow in our discernment of Scripture. And secondly, the Spirit would also speak to them what was to come, the ministry of Jesus preparing them for what would come, prophecy. So Jesus 
would, would enable the disciples to be able to see what would, would, would come. Thirdly, verse 14, the Spirit would glorify the Father by declaring what is, is the Father's and the Son's and declare it to them. In other words, the Spirit would continue to reveal to them the Word of God. They would continue to have the mysteries of the kingdom revealed to them. And we got to make it clear, we are not apostles. Like We are not receiving fresh revelation. Um, we are not writing scripture. We are not, uh, you know, doing all these, all these types of things. That was, that was their role and their gift. But so many blessings that the disciples received, the apostles received, uh, we share with the Spirit. Um, just as they suffered, we would suffer, but there would be a helper, and we have the helper. And so for us too, although we are not apostles, want to make that clear, and we don't receive special revelation and all this, we have the benefits of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and that He leads us in all truth, amen? We have the fruit of the Spirit as we abide in Christ. We have the gifts of the Spirit as He sees fit to give us, and we minister also in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers believers uh, in works of, of faith and, and demonstrating these gifts of the Spirit that He's given us and, and walk, as we walk in obedience. And of course, He empowers us to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, Acts 1.8. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. That's one way you actually know a believer is alive. They have the fruit of the Spirit. They have the character of Christ. Uh, they've been gifted by the Spirit, and they are a witness to the world around them. That's, that's, that's the fruit. It's, it's showing itself and so much more, by the way. But you know, church, um, Jesus promises, all that being said, that Jesus promises that if we follow him, we will suffer to some degree. But he has not left us as orphans. Amen? He's not left you alone. He has given us his spirit. His Spirit, the very same Spirit that dwelled in the apostles, dwells in us. His Spirit is in us. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, one and the same, indwelling us. He's teaching us if you let Him. He's leading if you let Him. If you keep in step with Him, He'll empower you. He'll cause you to be a witness that you've never been. Like Peter, who denied Christ before all those people just 50 days later when the Holy Spirit fell and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He witnessed in front of those people and thousands came to the Lord. I'm not saying thousands are going to come to the Lord um, you know, th through you. I hope more um, through me either. <laughs> but there will be an empowering to be a witness where God has placed us and the ministry has called us to, to our family, to our, to our, our spouses, to the place where we work and to the city that we're in, they'll empower you to be a witness of Jesus Christ testifying of these things. And there will be an element of, of conviction of sin because of, your, of, of the Holy Spirit within you and of righteousness and of judgment. Those things will be in you because the Holy Spirit's working through you. But there will also be backlash. And here's the great thing is that when... There is that backlash. Rejoice because great are your rewards, but also know, in addition to that, that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. And he promises to comfort you when the world rejects you. And he is the greatest comfort of all. He will comfort you. And I pray you that, that he would 
you would experience that comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit this week as you keep in step with him, as you abide in Christ, as you abide in his word, as you obey him and the things he's calling you to, as you don't prioritize what men think above what God desires for you, as you embrace the cross in your life, I pray that you would experience his strengthening in your heart. And as this world rocks back and forth with everything that's going on, and we know that the scriptures say that it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna continue this way and to greater intervals, I just think of Luke 21, 28, where Jesus says, we see these things, straighten up and raise your heads because your, rege- your redemption is drawing near. And that's what I pray for you, for me, that we would straighten up and raise our heads and put our eyes on Jesus this week for our redemption draws near. The time is near, church. Whether he takes you home from coronavirus or cancer or whatever it might be, or he shouts and he brings us to his, his place. But may you be strengthened in the spirit and be bold in these days and not shrink back and know that it could get difficult and expect that it will. And yet, we have the Holy Spirit, we have a helper until the day when we are face to face with him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your precious word. And Lord, my heart and my mind goes out to those who are experiencing persecution right now on this earth, Lord, in places that are much more difficult than we can imagine. And we pray as their brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would minister to them, you would comfort them, you'd strengthen them, you'd cause them to persevere in whatever this world has to throw at them. The world is not worthy of them, and I ask that your spirit, Lord, would, would cause them to be bold witnesses in the midst of their suffering. And Lord, as, as we choose to follow you increasingly in a dark world and to embrace the cross, whatever may come, we pray that we would bring honor to your name and glory to your name and that if you should choose to, to wait to come and get us, Lord, the next generation would see an example of the Holy Spirit at work in broken, undeserving people, and they would see you alive in us. May you have all the glory and all the honor from all of it. And we ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.